Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So our most urgent request to the President of the United States and every member of Congress is to give us the right to vote. The right to vote is very basic. We're going to uh, neglect that right, then uh, all of our talk about freedom is uh, hollow. The right to vote has never been just granted freely. It has always been fought for. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now. It's been fought for in the streets. It's been fought for in the courts. This is not a partisan issue. It is wrong. This is an American issue. Deadly wrong to deny any of your fellow Americans the right to vote in this country. Because our democracy is founded on ensuring that every eligible citizen has access to the ballot box. Like John, we've got to fight even harder for the most powerful tool that we have, which is the right to vote. This is how in America we get voting rights. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Turnout, a podcast exploring America's voting record, past, present, and future. Voting is a cornerstone of our democracy. We the people have a say in who governs us and what happens in our communities and in our country. But the reality of how voting works in America and who gets to do it has never been as fair or as clear cut as the story of this nation promised. In fact, the act or even attempt to vote is often described as a fight, a struggle, sometimes even a war. But how did this happen? And who has been waging this battle? Who's been fighting to make every generation's path to the ballot a little less arduous? And who among us has taken up the baton? These are the questions at the heart of this series. And the only way to start is at the beginning. For all of our imperfections, the nation was conceived in an experiment of liberty that would remove the American experience from the 
monarchs, the nobles, the inherited power of the old world. And who better to begin with? How are you, John? I'm all right. Trying to save America, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Then one of this country's leading historians and biographers, John Meacham. I invited him into my Zoom studio to find out what our founding tells us about the continuing war over voting. Religious liberty, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press. These were essential liberties that the founders believed in, were willing to die for. What were the hopes and dreams, John, of the founding fathers? The hope was that we would be a popular government, not necessarily a democracy, but a government that literally was based on the authority, the ultimate authority of the people. And so the work of Philadelphia in 1787 through the ratification in 1788 was to find a way for the people to be sovereign, comma, but. And so much of America hangs on the comma, but. Uh, They believed that the people could ultimately be trusted to choose their rulers. They did not believe that the people themselves could rule uh, from day to day. And they believed that those rulers would be manifestations of the people themselves, and the people were subject to appetite and ambition. And so, as Madison said, ambition had to be made to counteract ambition, which is why you have the Electoral College, you have the Senate, you have divided kinds of representation to try to find a way to achieve that most elusive of things, which was balance. When the Founding Fathers set up the system, it was predicated on a lot of these ideas of limited government, a social contract, popular sovereignty, but it was far from a perfect union. How so? Well, let's see. If you were an enslaved person, you were counted as three-fifths of a person, which was particularly insulting when you think about it, because you were being counted as a unit of power for those who owned you. That was a major imperfection, the perpetuation of slavery, the removal of Native peoples. Women, until 1920, were not granted the suffrage, so that's an imperfection. So we defined, we, meaning white men, defined citizenship quite narrowly and largely for ourselves. So that's the largest imperfection, and all these other implications all flowed from that. Why were the Founding Fathers so narrow-minded, John? We see them as limited. We see them as actively standing in the way of the creation of a multi-ethnic democracy. In our native region, you're from Virginia, I'm from Tennessee, we did not have a presidential election without some form of apartheid until 1968. But I'm careful about glibly condemning the past. King George III of England said of George Washington in 1783, If Washington actually gives up command of the Continental Army and retires, he will be the greatest man in the world. Because the voluntary surrender of power to these Republican, lowercase r, institutions was for its time quite radical. The story of the country, though, and the reason you're doing this, is it has been an unfolding story 
bloody, tragic, slow, painful, and provisional, but an unfolding story of applying the implications of that initial declaration in 1776 that we were all created equal and should therefore be treated equally. Was the fight for voting rights, John, there from the very beginning? And who were the people who were waging it? Abigail Adams wrote a letter to John Adams in 1776 saying to her husband, remember the ladies trying to seek more rights for women. There was an immense amount of tension. Seneca Falls was 1848. The rights of black people to vote was even more complicated because of the slave states. That was an immensely complicated political situation. But the 15th Amendment tells you that during the Reconstruction years after the Civil War, there was a full expectation on behalf of the national authorities that the suffrage was a fundamental element of citizenship. When you look back at Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Alice Paul and Frederick Douglass, these generations of reformers, you know, we look at them now and they're kind of statues and postage stamps. These were human beings struggling, trying to get just enough attention and to convert that attention into real reform. And so the story of the country in many ways is the story of this remarkably tumultuous battle for power from generation to generation. Coming up. Voting rights is about power. Voting rights has always been and will always be about power. Some of the weapons waged in America's voting wars. That's right after this. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! 
and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced, natural wool and environmentally safe foams the natural hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary indulges your senses and supports a greener tomorrow plus when you purchase the natural hybrid you're also helping fuel lisa's work with shelters and those in need since 2015 lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. When I'm talking about vote suppression, I'm talking about intentional or reckless steps to deny eligible voters the right to vote and their ability to vote. Wendy Weiser is the director of the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center for Justice, a nonpartisan think tank focused on defending systems of justice, voting rights and elections being a big part of that. There are a variety of tactics that have been used, some using the arms of the state, some using private vigilantes, but any attempt to interfere with the ability of an eligible person to vote and to make it hard for them to do so or to prevent them from doing so is vote suppression and is anathema to our constitutional system and to our system of government. Voter suppression is not new. (laughs) Gilda Daniels is a voting and civil rights expert and author of Uncounted, The Crisis of Voter Suppression in America, which just came out this year. Historically, we have seen literacy tests, poll taxes, vouchers, felon disenfranchisement, voter intimidation, economic terror. When I talked to my grandmother, I asked her, you know, well, why didn't she vote before the 1960s? She was in her 40s when she voted for the first time. And she said Black people didn't vote and Black people didn't vote because they could lose their land, they could lose their lives. There were all these barriers. The thing is, these voter suppression tactics aren't just a relic of the past. They're as current as the phone you're probably using right now to listen to this podcast. What has changed, says Gilda Daniels, are what these voter suppression tactics are called. Today, we see restrictive voter ID laws, voter purges, proof of citizenship laws, voter deception. We still have felon disenfranchisement, which certainly became a source of voter suppression At the turn of the 20th century, we see it in the 21st century as well, where there are more than 6.1 million people who do not have the right to vote because of uh, felon disenfranchisement. Voting rights is about power. Voting rights has always been and will always be about power. And to the extent there are people with the power and they understand the power of the vote, whether those persons are Republicans or Democrats, what the name of the party is doesn't matter. People who have power want to keep it and want to keep folk from uh, they want to keep folk from exercising that same power. But just as there have always been those who try to suppress the vote, there have been those fighting to reclaim it, 
to expand that power among the people. That, Wendy Weiser says, is what democracy is all about. If democracy is a a group sport, (laughs) it requires us to all participate and defend it. And if we don't invest ourselves in it, it it, it won't be able to hold itself up (laughs) without us. The right to vote has never been just granted freely. It has always been fought for. And when thinking about what most impedes access to the ballot, Wendy says we have to consider the very thing that grants us that access in the first place, voter registration. The United States does have among the lower voter participation rates among the world's major democracies. One of the reasons actually is our voter registration system. We actually are unique in the world, for the most part, requiring voters to take the affirmative step of registering themselves to vote rather than the government signing them up and then to keep their registration up to date. There is a strong argument to be made that voter registration itself was created as a way of suppressing the vote. This is Charles Stewart, founder and director of the MIT Election Lab. What if you just, all you had to do was just show up and vote? That's a good question. Why do people have to register to vote in the first place? It turns out voter registration is also a relic of the past that's still in use today. Voting has always happened in this country, even before the revolution. In the early 1700s, voting was a social occasion with drinking and dancing. When it came time to vote, the colonists who were eligible would gather together and signify their choice by standing or saying something. But that's the thing. It was always those who were eligible participating, which was, for a long time, just white male landowners. As more and more people came to the new world, colonists wanted to ensure the electorate continued to be just white male landowners. So they started to make it more official. In Massachusetts in 1742, voters had to present physical proof of land ownership before they could take part. By 1800, Massachusetts made that process an official law, and it became the first voter registration law in the country. Registration laws didn't really catch on until after the Civil War, when formerly enslaved Black people, as well as immigrants, started flooding northern states and cities. The registration laws that got enacted in the 1880s um, and 1890s were almost all in the cities were almost all intended to keep immigrants from Southern Europe from voting. They were enacted by legislatures, state legislatures, dominated by rural interests and trying to keep the city vote down. By 1900, registration laws spread west, south, and into rural areas, always with the intention of keeping certain people out of the voting process. So the history of voter registration is one of exclusion, which begs the question, in the 21st century... Why have registration at all if you care about access to the polls? Coming up, a governor who had that very same thought. We want people to participate. There should not be a litmus test for participating in this very fundamental act of democracy, the act of voting. And how her state finally turned the tide on voter registration. Good 
sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary, indulges your senses, and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the Natural Hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you wanted to look for a model of a state actively trying to open access to the ballot box, look no further than Oregon. In Oregon, we actually believe that your vote is your voice and every single voice matters. Governor Kate Brown has been leading the state since 2015, but her passion for voter access can be traced back to the 1990s and the beginning of her career in public service. It actually began uh, with my first election to the Oregon State House. And I literally won that election by 
seven votes. And I have to tell you, over 20 years later, I have people come up to me on the street and they now call me governor, of course. <laughs> say, Governor Brown, Governor Brown, I was your seventh vote. I was the reason that you won your race. And it's absolutely true. Everyone who voted for me, everyone who volunteered for me, they were the reason that I won that race. And so I am living proof um, that every vote matters and that every vote needs to be counted. And I, brought, I have brought that with me every step of my career in the legislature, as Secretary of State, and certainly as Oregon's governor. In 2008, Governor Brown was elected Secretary of State. In that role, she was in charge of Oregon's voting process and was focused on removing barriers to the ballot. Oregon was the first state in the country to be all vote by mail. The creators of vote by mail, their vision was that every eligible Oregonian should be able to have a ballot be put in their hands, that every Oregonian should receive a ballot in the mail. And we wanted to frankly extend that vision and make it more accessible to register to vote. We implemented online voter registration. And then the concept of automatic voter registration came about and we wanted as many people to participate as possible. We wanted it to be an inclusive process, not an exclusive process. So we moved forward with a proposal that literally automatically registers every eligible Oregonian through our Department of Motor Vehicles. And then folks who don't want to participate, they can sign a letter and opt out. As a result, we have over 90% of eligible Oregonians registered. Uh, we went uh, from being one of the lowest states in the country in terms of people of color being registered to now the second in the entire country. We also see that the electorate has diversified. We have more people of color. We have more folks from more rural communities registered. And honestly, we just have the vast bulk of Oregonians registered, and that's a really good thing. Why is this working so well? Because it's easy? <laughs> I think so. I literally had legislators ask me, it's already so easy to register to vote. Why would we make it easier? And the answer to that is really simple, because we can. We want people to participate. There should not be a litmus test for participating in this very fundamental act of democracy, the act of voting. Was it a struggle? How hard was it to get, <laughs> get it passed? <laughs> ha, you're laughing at me. <laughs> it was absolutely a struggle. I first introduced the legislation in 2013. It crushed my heart when it failed on the state Senate floor by literally one vote. But we worked hard during that election cycle and picked up another Democrat in the uh, 2014 election cycle. So I knew as we moved into the 2015 legislative session that we would have the votes that we needed. And then we knew that this was a first in the country system. We knew that there were other states likely to follow our lead. So the implementation was really a challenge. We created a blueprint. We wanted to be, make sure that if this was a success, that other states could follow. And I think we've had 17 or 18 other states follow our lead. I was gonna say, you have had now at least 18 states who have followed your lead. That must be a pretty good feeling. It feels really, really good. But what I think is most important is that we work throughout the entire country, frankly, 
to make voting as convenient and accessible to our voters, that we make sure that it's safe. I know in 2019, 538 collected registration and turnout numbers in eight states that have automatic voter registration and found that overall turnout was still significantly higher for those who registered themselves. What do you make of that? Well, I think it's really important that we get people registered and that automatic systems mean that more people will participate. We know that um, in our first election with automatic voter registration, we saw roughly 40 to 50% of these newly registered voters participate. I think it's important uh, that more voices participate and that we make it easier rather than harder uh, for people to have their voice be heard. I think it's as simple as that. In fact, ultimately, 538 found that automatic voter registration contributed to a boost in overall civic engagement. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's a good thing for our country. And I think particularly right now with what we're seeing on the ground with the pandemic, uh, with the clarion call for racial justice, I think it is so important when the fabric of our society is frayed It's key that the foundation of our democracy remains strong and ensuring people can exercise this very fundamental right is absolutely fundamental. (laughs) A lot of countries give people the day off to vote and they say it's a national holiday and they do everything they can to make it easier for people if they do want to go to the polls to go to the polls. Why hasn't the United States done something like that? I love the idea of a national holiday for election day. I know that we are seeing companies across the United States of America giving their employees this particular day off. They are encouraging uh, their employees to be poll workers. You're probably aware that the vast majority of our elections polling officers and poll workers tend to be volunteers and they tend to be in a generation that's particularly uh, susceptible to COVID. And so we really do need, uh, I'll say, other folks uh, to engage in this critically important process. My daughter, who is 24, is going to be a poll worker. That's so great. We know that if we can engage young people, um, particularly those under the age of 25, um, the earlier we engage them, we know that we will create lifelong voters. And I think that's so important if we want our democracy to be successful. Oh, honey, she is engaged. (laughs) I'll bet she is. I'll bet she is. Why is voter access so critically important, not just for Oregon and other states, but for the country at large? Well, we are wrestling with a number of difficult issues right now. We know that the pandemic has impacted our historically underserved communities of color uh, and low-income communities disproportionately than others. We are seeing wildfires erupt uh, in the West, in states like Oregon, California, Washington, and Colorado. These devastating fires are also impacting our communities that are on the economic edge. And I think it's so important in this day and age that in order to tackle these issues that we get as many voices to the table. And I think that voting is the easiest way to begin that process. We have got to open the door, make this process more inclusive, 
and ensure that Americans understand their right, their fundamental right to vote. We talk about the rights to free speech and the right to exercise our freedom of religion. We don't require you to sign up for either one of those. It's just given to you by virtue of your citizenship. The fundamental right to vote should be the same by virtue of your citizenship, your residency, and your age. You should be able to access this right. And I absolutely think that America is stronger and better when we all participate. Once again, John Meacham. The wider the vote has been wielded, the stronger we've become. We became the most powerful country in the history of the world as more people were allowed to participate. It's just a fact. We have always grown stronger the more widely we've opened our arms. So why doesn't everyone get on board and make it easier to vote for the good of the country? That's a question we'll continue to explore in this series through conversations with the people who have been and continue to fight for voting rights. Next week on Turnout, Mississippi looked up and said, Lord, we got all these black people. And if all these black people are really voting, it's going to transform Mississippi. We can't have that. And so you saw this move to eliminate African-Americans from the electorate. How America's fight for voting rights is wrapped up in the fight for racial equality. Hey, listeners, before you go, I just want to remind you there's still time to check your registration to make sure you can vote in this election. And while you're at it, check your parents, your friends, your cousins and aunts. To make that process easier, I'm partnering with the social justice organization, Do Something. To find out how to check your registration or to register to vote, text Katie to 38383. You can also go to vote.org to find out where and how to vote in your state. And subscribe to my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, for the latest election information. Turnout is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are Katie Couric and Courtney Litz. Supervising producers Lauren Hansen. Associate producers Derek Clements, Eliza Costas, and Emily Pinto. Editing by Derek Clements and Lauren Hansen. Mixing by Derek Clements. Our researcher is Gabriel Loser. And special thanks to my right-hand woman, Adriana Fazio. You can follow me in all my election coverage at Katie Couric. Meanwhile, yes, I'm Katie Couric. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. I come here to urge every person under the sound of my voice to go to the polls on the 3rd of November and vote. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. 
Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love Love at at First first listen. Listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.